Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, please grab them and turn to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be in verse 26 through 40, which is what Helen just read for us. If you are new here, my name is Brenton, and I am one of the pastors here. Uh, I am not our main teaching pastor. That would be Greg. And uh, Greg is out of town this week, uh, spending time with family. And so he's, he's enjoying that time. And it is my privilege uh, to be here to preach the word. And uh, before we, we begin, and as you're turning there, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. And um, I was informed that there was a bad accident out on 66th, and so I want to pray for that as well before we begin our time. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity and the gift that it is to be here today. And God, I want to begin by praying for that accident. God, first, we just, we, we ask for your mercy for those involved, that they would be okay, God. That they would not have gone through bad injuries. But God, more than that, we pray that you might use that accident in a way that we don't even understand. Maybe it's to bring someone to you. Maybe it's to, to cause a believer to uh, trust and depend on you more. Lord, we do not know and we do not often get to see your ways. But Lord, we do ask for your mercy for that. And Father, as we begin our study this morning uh, of your word, I pray, God, that your glory would shine through it. God, I pray that we may be in awe of you. May you do a work in our hearts this morning, that we may be on mission for you. And God, I ask that you'd help us to receive your word with clarity and with conviction of what is true. We pray this in your good name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, I've titled this message, The Greatest Evangelist. And as such, we will be talking about evangelism this morning. For Christians in America, in our current cultural moment in time, evangelism seems to be a word that carries a lot of different feelings with it. You might hear the word and instantly feel shame. Or you might hear the word and instantly feel excitement. Or you may feel confusion or fear. As I was studying this week, I did a simple Google search online for evangelism and the books that have been written lately about it, and the results were very interesting to me. I'd like to share a few of the titles with you. One was Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out. Evangelism, the way you were born to do it. How to revive evangelism. Evangelism for the rest of us. Sharing Christ within your personality style. How to talk about Jesus without being that guy. Honest evangelism. How to talk about Jesus even when it's tough. And speaking of Jesus, the art of not evangelism. Now, to be clear, I've not read any of this, these books, and I'm not saying that they're not good and helpful books. I, I truly don't know. But what's clear to me from looking at the titles is that for us in America right now, evangelism is difficult. In fact, it may even be something that we often see as burdensome. 
But today we encounter a story in the scriptures of salvation. Last week, Pastor Greg taught us about a faith that does not save, about Simon the magician. This week, we see a faith that does save. And in this passage, we are going to learn some lessons, some things about evangelism that I think will be of great encouragement to you this morning. And so I'm excited to dive in. Before we begin, the word evangelism is actually found in our text, and it might be helpful to define it first. And you might have thought, well, I didn't hear evangelism when Helen was reading. Well, let's look at verse 35. Now, evangelism comes from the Greek word, and I'm probably going to say it wrong, but euangelizo, euangelizo, something like that. And the word is here in verse 35, translated in this way at the end of the verse. It says, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, those uh, six words there, he told him the good news, are really just one Greek word, this word euangelizo. It's evangelism. It's, it, that, that's what it's been translated as. And I think that that's a helpful definition. We can say that simply evangelism is sharing the good news of Jesus. It's not an outreach program. It's not serving physical needs. It's not encouraging people to live a good life. It's not a personal testimony. And it's not anything to do even with the outcome of evangelism. It is simply put, sharing the specific, accurate message of the good news of Jesus that's found in the Bible with others. And so, as we look at our passage today, we are going to see six ways that we as a church can grow in evangelism. And so for those of you that are note takers, there will be six points to this message. It will be six ways to grow in evangelism. Some will be quicker than others, but they're all here and I think they're helpful. And so let's begin by again looking at verse 26. And it says this, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. So we see in this story that God has sent Philip to share the gospel with this man. But a question we might ask as we begin to look at the scripture, why didn't God just send the angel? The angel came to tell Philip to go, but why didn't God just send the angel to the man to help him understand? We might ask another question. The man was reading the book of Isaiah. He was reading the Bible. Why didn't the Holy Spirit just help him understand it? And I think the reason is this. God uses Philip. God uses a person to share the good news with another person. The method that God has chosen for evangelism is you. God uses people who have experienced salvation to be witnesses to bear witness to what has happened in them to others. 
The book of Acts started with uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, you will be my witnesses. Truly, much of the book is about this idea that we are witnesses for Christ. And so the first point is this. The first way that we can grow in our evangelism is simply, number one, to obey God's great commission. Number one, to obey God's great commission. We see in this passage, Philip is obedient to God. When we look back, the angel says to Philip, rise and go. And then in verse 27, he rose and went. If we look at verses 28 and 29 now, it says he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? So again, the spirit says to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And Philip runs. He is obedient to the Lord. I think when we think of the difficulties of evangelism, it can sometimes make us wish that maybe God chose a different method. Maybe one that wasn't so difficult for us. But I think that this is actually a pessimistic view of evangelism. For in evangelism, God invites us into his work. I picture like a father out in a garage building something like a a bookshelf and inviting his little son to come and join and help him. It's not that the son actually helps the dad. Uh, Really, it's probably going to take him longer to show the son. He could easily do it without him. But he invites the son to join his work for the sake of the son, to be involved in something his dad is doing. And for the sake of the father to get to see the joy of the son, it's just a small illustration of the, of the idea that God invites us into his work. He invites us into his mission. And that is a joyful thing. If you're at the age where you have retired or, or maybe you're past retirement or you're close to it, just because you retire from your job doesn't mean you retire from God's mission. If we are obedient, God will use each and every one of us until our last breath. And that's good news. If you're a young adult here today, you may be tempted to believe that great evangelism happens in a great movement. Or great evangelism happens by a gifted celebrity preacher or pastor. But you are God's method, not those things. You are the method. And thus, we don't have reason to be bored in our Christian lives. I think if we are bored as Christians, it means maybe we've likely forgotten that we are on mission for the kingdom. And so, we are the method. And the way that we can grow is understanding that we are to be obedient to the Great Commission. Number one, obey God's Great Commission. But while we are the method, we are not the means The means is the word of God. Let's look at verse 31. Philip asked him, do you understand what you are reading? Verse 31. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. 
And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Here in the passage, Philip, the, the, the eunuch is reading Isaiah. And Philip under, helps him to understand that this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. Truly, all the Old Testament is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Friend, if you are here and you are not a follower of Jesus, you may be wondering when we're talking about the good news of Jesus, what news this is that we've been talking about. Well, this is it. I'd like to tell it to you. And it really is the overarching theme and message of the Bible. It is this, that God created humans to worship him. But the great tragedy of mankind is that people have chosen not to worship God. Instead, people have chosen to rebel against God to, and to do things their own way. And that disobedience deserves and merits everyone eternal punishment and death in hell forever. But the good news is this. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus is God. And he came to earth in human form to live and display a life that we did not live. He came to live a life of righteousness, of humility, of love. He lived as humans were meant to live. And it was the only one who ever lived that way and was thus innocent before the judgment of God. But the only one who was innocent is the one who bled and who died upon a cross for you. He took on himself in his death your sins so you could be forgiven. And the crazy thing is, he could have sent a thousand angels at any moment to stop it. He could have stopped any enemy. The Romans, they could have easily been overthrown by Jesus. The Jews who handed him over to the Romans didn't stand a chance. The amazing thing about Christ going to the cross was that he went silently, as the prophecy points out. He went willingly to the cross for you. Like a sheep led to its slaughter. Like a lamb that stands silent before the one who's about to shear it. He didn't receive justice. He was falsely accused by the Jews. The Romans said, there's nothing wrong. What are we to do? And they only crucified him because the crowd was in an uproar and said, let's have him. And yet he still went because of his love for you. And when he had been in the grave three whole days, he rose from the dead. For death could not hold Jesus, for he is God. And so, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, you can be saved from the judgment you deserve. But how? You simply recognize that God is right. That you have been rebellious and have lived a life of rebellion toward him. And you choose to surrender. You choose to trust that Jesus saved you 
on that cross from your sins. And the amazing thing is that anyone who turns to God will be saved and will enjoy his presence forever and eternity. This is the amazing news that we get to share. Friend, if you are not following Jesus, there is no sweeter offer. There is no greater message. And there is no more precious gift than a relationship with God himself. God uses his word to save people. That is the means he has chosen. You are the method. That is the means. And thus, our second way to grow in evangelism is this. Number two, use God's word. Number two, use God's word. Surely, anytime we are sharing this news, we are communicating part of God's word. But Christian, consider a practical application of this. Why not read the Bible with someone who's not a Christian? I've done this a few times before, and I've always found it to be a really wonderful experience in which I have learned. If the word of God is the means, why not ask a coworker? Why not ask a neighbor to read together? I think the wonderful thing about this practice is that you are simply inviting them to see what God is saying. It, it's, it's no longer your view. You're coming together around the word to say, what is God saying? And where you can, you can help them understand. You're not expected to have all the answers. You can say, I don't know, and, and, and go and look up what question they might be asking or ask another Christian at church what they might be asking. But we've all been the eunuch at one point. We've all been one who has not understood. And different Philips have come along to help us understand. And so how can we do that for others? How can we be that for others? So the method is you, the means is God's word, but how is someone saved? Well, we have to be clear about one thing. It's not you. <laughs> Your job is to share a message. Your job is not to convert someone. The mailman delivers the mail. He doesn't go inside and make sure the recipient responds to all the letters. So you don't have the power to save anyone. The power is God's alone. I titled this sermon, The Greatest Evangelist. And you may have thought I meant Philip, I didn't. I don't believe Philip is the greatest evangelist. I believe the Holy Spirit is the greatest evangelist. And we may think that Philip is the main actor here, but he's not. The main character here and in all of Acts is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who has the power to save. We see it here. We see that it's God who tells Philip to go. We see that it's the Spirit who directs Philip once he's there to talk to the man. Once, the man sh once Philip shares the good news with the eunuch, it's the Spirit who saves him. And then the Spirit takes Philip away. The Spirit is the main actor here. And so point number three is this, of how we can grow in our evangelism. Number three, pray and rely on God's power. Pray and rely on God's power. We share, we pray, and we rely. It can be easy once we get going in evangelism to be tempted to rely on our power. There can be a temptation to make our own plans for people in their lives. But if 
this narrative teaches us anything, it's that the plan is God's. God is the one in charge. God is ruling and reigning over every aspect, every circumstance, every person in the universe. That is what we mean when we say he's sovereign. We mean that he is king on the throne over all. And God is the one who directed Philip to this eunuch to be saved. And the crazy thing is, when we step back in the book of Acts, we see God's plan. First, the message of Jesus hit and impacted Jerusalem. Then, Philip took it to Samaria. And now, a man all the way from Ethiopia believes, and he's going back home. God is expanding his reach. God is spreading the message of the gospel. And we see that God sovereignly saved this man, knowing that he would be the next piece in his grand plan of the spread of the gospel. And so we learn that God is the main orchestrator of life. And so the the fourth way that we can grow in our evangelism is simply this. Number four, trust God's plan. We share We rely and we trust that he's the one in control. Number four, trust God's plan. I think the more we can trust in his plan, the less we will be worried about what we think should be happening around us. John Piper has a great quote about God's plans. He says this, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. God is on the throne. And it is his plan. But when God chooses to save someone, what then is the outcome? Let's continue reading in verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Look at verse 39 at the end. What is the response of the eunuch? Well, it's certainly not slavish, drudgery, and duty. It's joy. The Philip goes on, uh, uh, the, the eunuch goes on rejoicing at what he has just heard. And I think we need this perspective in our lives today. We share the good news of Jesus because we want to see others find joy in God. And so the fifth way that we can grow And our evangelism is this, long to see others rejoice in God. Number five, long to see others rejoice in God. We need to remember that the message we offer leads to unending joy. Teenagers who are here today, you are growing up in a world where a belief that's different from the majority of beliefs if you, have, if you believe something different, uh, that is offensive. And what it can do is it can make it feel like 
sharing the gospel is actually hurting people rather than helping people. You will be tempted to soften the message. You will be tempted to say, well, I don't need to share. I I should just do good deeds and hopefully they'll be attracted uh, to a lifestyle of following God by that. But the truth is, though they may not like the message at first, you are sharing it for their joy. If they believe in Jesus later, they will be thanking you that you shared with them despite their initial hatred of the message. If there are any Christians here today who are walking a path of suffering, I want to speak to you a moment as well. I can't begin to know or understand what your path is like or the suffering you're enduring. But my encouragement to you is this. Never let the burdens of your suffering snuff out the joy of your salvation. For one day, the suffering will be no more. And you will enter into eternal joy. <laughs> it, the eunuch, his, we haven't talked about what a eunuch is yet. We're going to get there in a second. But his circumstances didn't change. He still had to live the rest of his life as a eunuch. But something did change. For now, he has the joy of salvation. He has been saved. And that's so good. So we, we, we long to see others rejoice in God. We share for their good. And finally, number six, and this one is very important. We saved it for last. Number six, know God's love for sinners. Know God's love for sinners. And to see this, I think we need to have a little bit more context as to what's happening in this passage of Scripture. So, we learned about Philip in Acts chapter 6. He was this early type of deacon in the church in Jerusalem. But when Saul ravaged the church, the church scattered. And Philip went to Samaria. And in Samaria, it says he went town to town sharing about Jesus with each of the towns and sharing with crowds. And afterwards, he returned back to Jerusalem. But it's interesting. Once he gets back to Jerusalem, God sends this angel to Philip to send him not to crowds and villages of Samarians again or to another area or group of people. He sends him to one man in the desert. When Philip finally gets to the man, we learn that this man was an Ethiopian eunuch. And he was on his way back from Jerusalem. What was he doing in Jerusalem? Well, it it tells us he went to worship the Jewish God. Now, a eunuch is a man who has been castrated. And this was done for various reasons, but... Um, One of them would be maybe if he was serving with a woman who was in a high rank. This was done so that there was no temptation or or no really ability for uh, that relationship to be compromised. And so we we do learn that he is serving uh, Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He is her treasurer. He's in charge of managing her wealth. Just a quick note on her. Candace is actually not a name. Um, It's a title. So you might think of the title like Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh's not a name. There are several pharaohs in Egypt. Same was true of the queen of the Ethiopians. Candace was a title. And this Ethiopia is not the same Ethiopian region we have today. Uh, it's a little farther north. So it would be like southern Egypt and northern Sudan, just to give you an idea of where that's at. But here's the thing about a eunuch. According to the Jewish law, and you might want to write this reference down, this is Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. According to the Jewish law, a eunuch could not enter the assembly of the Lord. So even though he worshipped Israel's God, he couldn't become a Jew because of his state as a eunuch. So this means he traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles in a chariot, probably only going five, ten miles per hour on a bumpy road, to get to Jerusalem where he would not even be able to enter the temple courts to worship. There was this short wall that actually surrounded the temple courts at this time. It was called the Soreg. And this short wall was to keep out any Gentiles or Jews that were unclean. And so he would not have made it past this wall, even to be able to come into the temple courts to worship. And yet he still came to worship. But here is where we see the amazing love of God. For God pursues this man. He sends Philip to meet this one man on a road in the desert on his way back to Ethiopia where he shares the good news and this man is saved. He comes to Christ. God pursues him. But it gets even better. For the eunuch is reading a passage from Isaiah 53. This is a prophecy about Jesus. But just a few pages later in Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5, it says this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. So this man was indeed a foreigner to the people of God. He wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile. But look what it says next. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name that's better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. The eunuch who traveled hundreds of miles to Jerusalem to worship could not enter the temple courts, but the God who loves him pursued him. And now because he has believed in Jesus, though he could not enter the temple courts, he will soon become the temple of God himself when the Spirit of God enters into him. To the one, amen, to the one who could not enter the house of the Lord. The Lord says you will have a place in my house. This is our story. This is our story. See the heart of God. See his love and his mercy for this lost sinner. God's love pursues the least and the lowest. But don't stop in your meditation of this and thinking about this simply about the Ethiopian eunuch. Christian, remember how you were lost and without Christ. Remember how God pursued you. Remember how you were at your least 
and lowest without him. And remind yourself of how great the Father's love for you. That he would send his son to die for you. And he'd send his spirit to give you life. The final way we grow in evangelism is to know the love of God for sinners. We will not live a life of love toward others if we have not been deeply impacted by the love of God for ourselves. The whole letter of 1 John is about this. John is trying to paint this, this picture for his, his readers. He's saying if you've experienced God's love, you'll love other people. And vice versa, if I see no love for other people, I know you've not experienced God's love. But when we've tasted the goodness of God, when we've experienced his love, it compels us. I love how Paul writes about this. This is a great verse. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, if you want to write it down. And Paul says this, for the love of Christ controls us. It compels us. It motivates us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It is the love of Christ that compels us. It motivates us. It controls us and, and, and Paul to live a life for God's glory and for the good of others. I think that this is one of the most needed things in evangelism today that we do a disservice to you if we simply emphasize methods for evangelism. But we, don't, but we do not encourage you to dwell upon the love of God. When Jesus talks in Luke chapter 15 and shares a parable about a um, man with a hundred sheep and one sheep goes off and it gets lost. He says the man leaves the 99 sheep and he goes after the one. And when he brings that sheep back, there's great rejoicing. And Jesus says, that's the picture of heaven. When one sinner is saved, heaven rejoices. And I can't help but think here. I can't help but see that here. That God sends Philip to the one in the desert to bring him home through salvation. So in conclusion, we've seen in this passage six ways that we can grow in our evangelism. Let me give them to you again. Number one, obey God's great commission. Number two, use God's word. Number three, pray and rely on God's power. Number four, trust God's plan. Number five, long to see others rejoice in God. And number six, know God's love for sinners. As I was reading this week and studying, I read different stories about evangelism that did bless my heart, and I thought about sharing one at the close here. But instead, I thought I would just ask you to consider your own story. We have a wonderful uh, historical event in front of us. But think about your own story. Think about how you were saved. Think about the people that shared with you. 
Think about the ones that shared but never saw any fruit come from it. And yet God used them. Think about God's love for you. I do hope this message challenges us as a church. But more than that, I hope that reflecting on this leads us to give greater glory to God. For he is the founder of our faith. He is the perfecter of our faith. And he deserves the glory. If you didn't notice, all the points intentionally point to God. It's his great commission we obey. It's his word we use. It's his power we rely on. It's his plan we trust. It's joy in him that we long for others to see. And it's his love and heart that compels us to evangelism in the first place. The glory goes to God. He is the greatest evangelist. Let's pray. Father God, we do give glory to you today. What a wonderful moment in history that you've recorded for us to see and study and share. And God, I can't help but think of your great love and mercy for us as we look at it. God, I pray now that as we have dwelt upon these things, they wouldn't just be in our minds, but they would sink deep into our hearts. Change us, Lord. Cause us to live as a community on mission for you, for the joy of others, being compelled by your love. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together this morning to worship you and give glory to you. Yours is the glory and the power and the majesty and the honor. You are holy. You are like no other. There is no one like you, God. And we praise you this morning. We pray this in your name. And everyone said, amen.